the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. Today is the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So Mm. December 7th, 1941, uh, basically... As anyone who you know knows history at all knows that this is the day that uh, all those ships on Pearl in Pearl Harbor were attacked, uh, and it was basically our introduction into World War II. And yeah. uh, you know, you think about major memorials in our nation. I would say the biggest one these days, right, is nine eleven. Every time nine eleven comes around, uh, we always say things like "We won't forget," right? We'll always remember, and we always want to be impacted. But it is wild that that 80 years is a long time, and it's really easy to forget, isn't it? Like, you just kind of go, yeah, you know, oh, Pearl Harbor, what was that again? It it loses kind of something because as this generation dies off. But thinking about, Aubrey, why do you think it's important that we remember these major historical markers? You know, I, I let me say one thing, and I'll just confess this to you. Before we came on air this evening, you were like, did you know it was Pearl Harbor Day? And I was like, uh, yes, but because <laughs> I had to be reminded, you know what I mean? Which I think yeah. is devastating. I, now, obviously, there are things like 9-11 that we've had in our lifetime we will never forget. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure those who actually experienced uh, Pearl Harbor Day would never forget that date. But there is something... I guess pretty devastating and sad about the fact that like I needed to remember to remember this Mm -hmm. massive thing in our country's history, in the world's history, honestly. Um, But why is it important that you remember? I think that's what you talked about. Mm -hmm. I think one, it's important just to honor those who fought, those who died, those who gave their lives, those who sacrificed. And I, I think history always helps us make sense of the present Um, History always helps us navigate and make better decisions as we both learn from the examples before us, maybe to do it differently Mm -hmm. or to honor the examples before us because they did it so well. And if we forget our history, I think sometimes we think we live in this bubble and like nothing has gotten us to where we are now. But it is essential for us to remember that like one thing led to the next, which led to the next, which led to the next. And in that way, we can begin to unpack why things are even in the country the way it is right now. And so there's both. There's like an honoring and a learning that happens when we remember these historic moments. Yeah. So it's for those of you who need some just refreshing of what happened on the morning of December 7th, 1941, 183 aircraft of the Japanese Navy attacked the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor. Uh, And within two hours, 18 U.S. warships had been sunk or damaged, 188 aircraft destroyed. And here's the big number, 2,403 American servicemen and women were killed uh, on that attack. And again, uh, that was uh, where the president said, this is a day that will live in infamy. And then this ushered us into 
World War II. Yeah. Uh, a couple different things come to mind for me, Aubrey, as we think about the attack on Pearl Harbor. One is oftentimes that generation is famously known as the greatest generation. Uh, and the amazing things uh, that that they did, the wars that they fought, the, the ways that they stood up for our free, all of this, so much that you and I, kind of the next generations and the generation after that, you know, we're kind of a couple generations down the line. Yeah. Uh, we have so much to owe to that generation. Absolutely. Like things we were do. so, yeah. we think about things now, but, but compared to then, what they fought for, the way the world could have gone in a completely mm. different way. Like that wow, feels like what we that. need to be remembering and honoring today, right? Mm. That generation that there aren't many of them left. That's kind of your and I's grandparents that generation. Is. That's right. Uh, there's not many left. And I think it's really important. I, I think you'd agree that we pass this on to our kids and we share these stories and we talk Absolutely. about those who have already gone. It doesn't, that feels important because it also reminds us of who we are as a nation. What makes us strong? Mm as a nation. Yeah, that's that's such a good word, Brian, that we that this is the generation that is currently passing and has mm-hmm. passed. I can't we talked about this a few weeks ago and I don't remember the exact stats, but especially after COVID, a lot of the greatest generation um, has been lost to us. And for you and me, I mean, my grandpa was a vet in World War II. I'm guessing yours might have been as well. And so this is this is who we are as a nation. This is also like our roots, right? And so to mm-hmm. share with our children and for them to share with their, hopefully their children one day, the sacrifice that these men and women made that like our, our grandparents sacrificing mm-hmm. for us. I think we forget the personal nature of it. And so you're right. This is a moment to honor, like had things gone differently, what a different country we would live in right now. Right. But because uh, the greatest generation fought in World War II, America has the freedom and the rights that we have right now. And, and though I know there's a lot of, you know, sort of, on the other side would say, but it's only rights for certain people and there's not rights for everybody. I would still say, generally speaking, we are not owned by Nazi Germany. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so in one sense, we are a better nation overall because of their sacrifice. So you're Absolutely. exactly right. Let's let's pause. Let's honor. Let's remember. Yeah. And I think uh, it's also an opportunity to teach and to like by remembering also to we've got this wonderful thing called Google where we could go hey, yeah. Pearl Harbor and all of this stuff's going to come up about mm. what happened. Take some time to tell your kids tonight as you're going to put them to bed yeah. or whatever. Hey, it's an important day. Same thing. I think our generation will always feel that for 9-11, mm-hmm. right? Like we will on the 80th anniversary of 9-11, you're going to be good. But no, no, you need to know about this. And I think uh, that's the same for Pearl Harbor. So an important day in American history, uh, hopefully one that you take a moment to remember, to be thankful, to remember what unifies us as a country in a time of great yeah. divisiveness uh, and important day. Well, Aubrey, you and I are, are super excited because today uh, we get to spend some time with an author that I know you and I have both uh, appreciated over the years. His name is Philip Yancey. He wrote a new memoir called Where the Light Fell, called Where the Light Fell, and Philip Yancey is going to come on and talk to us about that new memoir and all sorts of other things next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, we are thrilled to be joined uh, by best-selling author of multiple books. Uh, I've read them all. The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, a book about prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? 
Uh, and he's the author of his new memoir called Where the Light Fell. That author is Philip Yancey. Philip, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it is so good to have you with us. Hey, uh, I would love to just start with the very uh, basic question. Why the memoir? What, what was the reasoning for writing this memoir now at this point in your life? I have been writing books for a long time, about 40 years or so. And there are stories in my past that inform why I choose to write the topics that I write about. Mm. And I decided at my age, 72, it's time to get those secrets out, to face into uh, kind of the the story of the church and the family I grew up in. Mm. A lot of people have wounds from the church, wounds from family. Yeah. And I, I decided to explore those. And frankly, even though there were painful memories, stitching it together was very therapeutic. And I hope it's a, a hopeful message for other people who have different stories, but maybe some, some similarities too. I bet it was a, a healing process. I, I love that you, you kind of put these stories to pen. Thank you for that. Do you want to, um, I mean, do you feel like we're just going to dive right in here, Philip, opening sure. up a little bit about your childhood and, and maybe some of the wounds and how you're carrying them today? Yes. Well, my life was largely formed in, in early days by a theological error. <laughs> my father was planning to be a missionary. He was an ordained minister, and he and my mother were going to Africa. They had two young sons. We're in the process of gathering support and prayer. And then my father got sick. The pandemic in those days was polio, not coronavirus. Mm. And it was especially feared because it tended to affect children. But in his case, he was 23 and was put in an iron lung. There was only one hospital in Atlanta, wow. Georgia, where they lived. He couldn't even, he was paralyzed so completely, he couldn't even breathe on his own. The machine breathed for him. Mm. It was a miserable existence for about two months. And then the people who were around him thought, surely God wouldn't, quote, take a person like this who wanted to serve God as in the mission field. So they decided, well, God's going to heal him. God is a God of healing, and he could do that. So against medical advice, I actually had to sign releases against medical advice. They removed him from that iron lung, and he showed a little bit of possible improvement, but nine days later, he died. Wow. And that that set the stage for my life. My mother was a widow. She had no real preparation, had never driven a car, had never written a check. We grew up in poverty. And... We, As I tell in the book, she started to view us, my brother and me, as his replacement, kind of a, an atonement sacrifice for <laughs> the, an, error, an error that they had made. Mm. They took on a prerogative that we really don't have the right to take on. We can pray for healing, but we can't demand it. We can't, we shouldn't act on it, just assuming it's going to take place. So that sets the stage. And my brother and I went through all sorts of uh, wanderings along the way, spiritual journeys. He went one way, I went another way. I ended up as a Christian writer. He ended up as an atheist. Hmm. And he and my mother haven't had uh, contact, haven't seen each other in 51 years. Hmm. So it's got a little bit of everything, Southern fundamentalism, poverty, uh, racism, prodigal son, <laughs> conversion story, Bible college. That's my story, and I decided to try to put it all together. 
Yeah, and it's just a fascinating story. I had the opportunity to listen to the podcast you did with Russell Moore, and it was just, mm. I would encourage people to go listen to it as you talk about that story. Uh, let me just ask you, kind of, he, people hear your story. Uh, why did you remain a Christian? Like, it seems what your brother's response seems a little natural to me. Why did you not lose your faith, or did you along the way? I did. I, I would say I suspended it for four or five years. <laughs> you know, when you grow up in that Christian subculture and, and we got the full dose, my mother was a Bible club teacher. So we heard the same Bible story Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then a new one the next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> and in high school years, we actually lived in a trailer, eight by 48 foot trailer on church property. So we could never get away from church. Wow. And I was so saturated and, and you can learn how to do the deal. You pray the prayers, you give the testimonies. And when my mother would head up these summer camps, one week I'd decide, oh, I think I'll be camper of the week this week. And I would know how to do that. And next <laughs> week I think, oh, I think I'll try to get kicked out of camp next week. Well, they couldn't kick me out. My mother was running it, you know. So <laughs> at, at a certain point, I didn't know what was fake and what was real, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of gave up. I had been burned by the church on issues like racism and had seen a lot of the flaws in the church. And then uh, the title of the book is Where the Light Fell. And that comes from a quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. Mm. And that's what I felt. I, I had been scorched by the sun. I had this image of God as this bully going around smashing people. And, and it was through other things where the light fell, through nature, through classical music, through romantic love that I realized I came away with completely the wrong opposite image of God. God was a God of love, not trying to break people, trying to woo them, trying to love them. Mm. And when I experienced that, I I had a dramatic conversion experience that I describe in the book. God meets us all in different places. I, I don't hold that out as a model for anybody else. It's just what happened to me, and it changed my life completely. I was cynical. I wasn't really seeking God, but but God crept up on me, <laughs> softened me, and then met me in a in a life changing way. Mm. Oh, so beautiful, so encouraging to hear. I, I wonder, Philip. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people would think of you as uh, kind of rooted in evangelicalism with some of the things that you're talking about. I guess uh, two questions: One, do you still call yourself an evangelical? And two, do you think there's a place for evangelicalism in 2021? I still do cling to that word. In fact, um, it seems to be an American problem. You know, when we don't like something, we start just changing the words, changing the names. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to Walter Kim, who's head of the National Association of Evangelicals. He went to this World Evangelical Congress and he said, we're the only people who don't like that word. People in Africa, people in Asia, they like identifying as evangelicals. It means good news. Now, in in the United States, right now, it's seen primarily through a political lens. That was not true of me growing up, and it's kind of a, a recent phenomenon. So, you know, you hear this statistic all the time that 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And in Time Magazine, New York Times, that's how they identify evangelicals. That's not the evangelicals I know. And I'm going to cling to that good news as long as I can until the word has no meaning in, anymore. Mm. 
Again, Philip Yancey is the best-selling author of multiple books, including The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? I'd encourage you to Google and just, there's a lot of books and they're all wonderful. So I'd encourage you to go get them. And he's got a new memoir out, kind of looking back on his life, talking called Where the Light Fell. You can learn more about Philip at philipyancey.com and also connect with him on Twitter at philipyancey. Uh, Philip, you probably hear this a lot, but uh, just let me share personally, like your book, The Jesus I Never Knew, was a foundational book for me. I actually read it in mm. Israel. I was in Israel oh, on my. a summer program for Wheaton College uh, reading The Jesus I Never Knew. And it was just kind of like a, one of those books that's a marker for me. So, A, I want to thank you for the book. But, uh, B, I want to know the background to that book, this idea that there's this picture of Jesus that we've created, and then there's the Jesus we of the Bible that maybe we don't know. Can you unpack the thought process behind the book and why that's such an important message now, maybe more than ever here in 2021? Sure. Actually, that traces back to my Chicago days, Brian. I was going to a church called LaSalle Street Church, and I started teaching a class where we began at the book of Genesis and started just plowing through. And I ended up teaching for eight years. Wow. And it took me five years to get through the Old Testament. <laughs> I was tired. The class was tired. So I took a few months off. And then I decided, uh, how, how can I do the Gospels differently? Well, a friend of mine had this idea. I went out and bought, back in those days, a VHS <laughs> uh, tapes, videotapes <laughs> of movies about Jesus, funny ones like The Gospel Road, a, a movie by Johnny Cash, and um, Last Temptation of Christ, and, and uh, even Monty Python. And, <laughs> and I would go scene by scene through the Gospels, and I chose four or five of those movies. And great directors are looking at the same scene, you know, the woman caught in adultery or whatever, and they would have very different takes on what happened. So we'd look at four or five, and that would kind of flush out our preconceptions of what it was like. And then I would say, okay, here are four or five different renditions. If you were the movie director and you were standing there while this scene happened historically, what would you have seen? What was going on? And it was just a great way to look at the Gospels in a, in a different way, out of that kind of Sunday school background that we, so many of us shared. And later, uh, just after that, we moved to Colorado. I, I was, at the time, funny story, I was uh, drawn into the people who were writing a biography of Billy Graham. Hmm. And I had some suggestions, but I, I had this real specific idea of how the, the biography should be shaped. And, and they did not. They didn't share it. So I said, <laughs> okay. But, but I, had, I had worked for months on this. And then I thought, well, what should I write back? right next. And I was all primed to write a, a biography of a famous person. I thought, well, what about Jesus? I've been teaching this <laughs> class for two, two years. And then I went uh, to libraries and saw, well, at that time, there were 65,000 books on Jesus. And mm. I thought, does the world really need another book on Jesus? And then I thought, well, you know, people in my class and myself, uh, yes, we did need a fresh look at it. So it's the Jesus I never knew. It's it's Jesus in that elusive, surprising, revolutionary, sometimes shocking way. Right. We get used to him. We tame him. 
But if you just read the Gospels and put yourself back in his time, he wasn't a tame person at all. He was wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's so cool, Philip. And I, I would love to swing back if you're okay, continuing to talk about your new memoir, Where the Light Fell. And I think a question that I have for you, because you talked about this being your first memoir, and obviously I think you said you were 72, looking back on your life now. Um I know this isn't a book where you're just like, I want you to know Philip Yancey's biography. There's a heart to it. There's a purpose to it. I wonder what you would love, especially younger readers, to take from this book. I have heard from a historian friend of mine that there may be as many as 25 to 30 million ex-evangelicals out there. Mm. People who were raised in, in the subculture and maybe they have kind of fond memories of going to Young Life Club or Youth of Christ or a summer camp. But Somewhere along the line, they've run into a barrier in the church. Maybe it's the way they treat divorced people or gay people or the way they handle science or something like that. And they're floating out there. They still have spiritual sensitivities, but the church hasn't done it for them. And when I am in a conversation with people like that, I listen to their story and I kind of lean back and say, oh, it's worse much worse than that. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> and, and, and they're kind of surprised. They say, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian writer. And I said, well, I am, but it would be a really bad trade to forfeit a, a relationship with the God of the universe because of the way you were treated by some buddy people in church, you know? And, and so I really wanted to reach those people. I wanted to be very honest. Uh, my church experience is worse than most people that I've talked to because it was an angry, fundamentalist, Southern variety. And yet, uh, through it all, I, I found where the light fell. God melted me in and softened me. And, and I began to see that, uh, I guess I would say, don't blame God for the church. Wow. And, you know, don't, don't forfeit God because of the church. What a, what a foolish trade that would be. Mm. And, and for those people... Uh, you know, we can we can be missionaries to bring health back to the church. If you don't like it, instead of just getting away from it, try to change it from the inside out. I, yeah. I've i been in the heart of, I worked for Christianity Today for 26 years. I wrote a monthly column there, and I, I know it from the inside out. And wherever I go, because I've spoken a lot of places, there are good people who are right now, today, visiting prisons and working in homeless shelters yeah. and and uh, parental counseling, pregnancy centers, places like that. It still is good news. Evangelicals are often the ones providing the ener- energy for that. And it doesn't often get profiled in the media, yeah. but it's out there. These are good people doing good things. And maybe they need some corrections. I know they do. I've spent my life doing that. But at heart, they are in their own way trying to follow Jesus. Amen. Uh, Philip, I, a lot of this centers around at least the background of your mom and your, your brother and, and your family. I, I wonder, how is your relationship with your mom now, with your brother? What did they think of this book? I'm just wondering how that has now progressed all these years later. Interesting story. I was very afraid of that. That was the most difficult thing and probably the reason I waited so long to, mm-hmm. to write my story. My brother loved it. He felt that even though in some ways he made a lot of bad choices that I talk about, it validated his life. He he feels that it expressed why he made the choices that he did. My mother can't read. She's got macular degeneration. She only hears things from other people. And 
ironically, when I thought this would be this rupture in the family, it has kind of brought them together. Even since I turned in the book manuscript, I've gotten I've gotten them on the phone together in a three-way phone conversation. Mm. The first time they've heard each other's voice in 51 years. Wow. We've had two conversations, not, you know, not all peace and joy, believe me, yeah. but at least they're talking. And and my brother actually, to my astonishment, on his own, without prompting, sent in a note, sent her note with three words on it, just says, I forgive you, which is an amazing thing. That's a miracle that I would not have uh, predicted and, and happened after I turned the book in. Oh, wow. That's powerful. Philip, we're so thankful for the time you spent with us. Uh, we only have like a minute or two, so this might be an unfair question, but I, I really think you could speak to this well. And you touched on it already, uh, but I would just love to hear, are you hopeful for the for the church? Are you hopeful for the church going forward? And, and if so, why are you hopeful? Well, I'm very hopeful for the global church. I've been to about 88 countries, and everywhere I go, I see the work of God bursting out and changing. In the United States, we have to get used to the fact that we're not the home team anymore. You know, we're, we're a minority. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's a pluralistic society. But so what? That's true in most of the Bible. The church is in exile. Israel is in exile. And, and that's true in most of the world. And the church can do, the church often does best in difficult circumstances. So yes, I do have hope, but we need to, we need some wise leadership, moral leadership to show us the way. Absolutely. Again, the book is called Where the Light Fell. That's Philip's new memoir. You can learn more about Philip Yancey at philipyancey.com. Also connect with him on Twitter at Philip Yancey. Philip, this has been such a pleasure for us. Thanks for being so generous with your time and spending some time with us today. Well, you made me nostalgic for those Chicago days. I'd be listening to you right now. <laughs> Come visit us anytime. There you go. There okay. you go. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, if I were to ask you a very big, like, question about humanity, okay? Mm -hmm. I want to know your answer. What is humanity's greatest desire? Ooh, that is a good one. I would think, uh, if I had to guess, if you and I did a top five list on this, I would say a couple different things. I would say, um, and they, they all kind of fit together. I think humanity's greatest desire is to be loved, to be accepted, uh, or to be important mm. or to like have to be seen as important. So I think it's some combination of those. I would probably go with love and acceptance. Like I know that I'm yeah. loved. I, I know that I'm accepted and known by people. How about yeah. how would you answer that question? Well, I mean, I, I wrote a whole book on this, but I would say loved and known, <laughs> obviously. And by the way, you can find my book on Amazon. No, no just kidding. Um, I would say loved and known, or maybe I would even say known and loved. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. because I think that's our big fear is like, well, if they really know us, they're not going to love us. Like if they see the real us, we're not going to be accepted. So I think being known intimately and then continually loved because of that over at ChristianScholars.com, there's a fascinating article about desire and Adele. Uh, but one of the things that this author talks about is perhaps there is no stronger desire and no greater dissatisfaction than longing for perfect, enduring love. So we mm -hmm. were kind of right on there with love. But um, so Brian, you and I talked about uh, the Adele interview with Oprah, 
right a few weeks ago, just right on the cusp of her new album that came out. And this is what uh, Tim Muehlhoff, again, over at ChristianScholars.com is writing about. And I wanted to share this with you because he talks about some of the comments that you and I talked about. One was that she loves her husband, but is no longer in love with him and divorced him, which a lot of people criticizing, including you and I, I think we were we just did. a little bit disappointed in that. But then the other thing that he points out, which I, I think is really interesting is um, her desire for a love that lasts. It's what she sings about. It's what she kind of taps into uh, in her music. And he um, argues that her kind of saying, you know, I, I love my husband, but it's not the kind of love I want, or I, I'm misquoting, but you know what I mean? I, I'm yep, making yep, a yep. generalization here. He's arguing that, she, that, he, that she's actually maybe tapping into something that's true of all of us. Like, what if we all have this sense of discontentedness that is a longing for a love that lasts? And of course, what he's going to argue is that love we don't find in human relationships. We mm -hmm. find ultimately mm -hmm. from God. And I, I don't know. I thought this was interesting to like, it was like a different take on the Adele conversation. Like, what if it's not just like she's getting marriage wrong, but what if she's actually pointing to something very human in us that can point us to our need for the love of mm. God. That's a long winded way of saying, what do you think about this, Brian? I think, he, you know, anything called Christian scholars, there's a depth to it. as you read it. But, <laughs> Right. But this is the age old question, right? What's going to satisfy the deepest longing, the desire to use his words that we all feel. And so, you know, Adele is she's very honest in it because she even talks about where her songs come from, like this deep kind of longing in her life. Uh, but, you know, you you highlighted the marriage thing she talked about, about looking for someone she's in love with. Um, but I think rather than point fingers at her and be like, oh, how could you? Feel? I think we all feel this, right? Like we search. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. We we search for meaning and purpose in, in money, in power, in possessions, in re earthly yeah. relationships, in all of these different places. And then when they fail us. We point to them as the problem, right? right? So therefore, my marriage is wrong. Therefore, something's wrong with my kids. Therefore, I need a new job or I just need to make more money or whatever else it mm -hmm. might be. It, uh, when when those things don't satisfy, we rarely go, well, that's because they're not meant to satisfy us. Mm. But rather we go, well, I, they're just not doing it well enough. Yeah, the, something's wrong wife, with that thing, right? My spouse should be satisfying all my deepest longings of love and acceptance and whatever else. Or, but, but you know, your husband, my wife, they, they are also fallen people who are trying to yeah. navigate life. My kid, you know, all of this stuff. And so the real question underlying this article is what then actually does satisfy? Yeah, what actually right. is the answer to our desires? What, how do we actually get it? And, where this conversation, Aubrey, becomes difficult is we know the church answer, right? Yeah, we know the right. answer. We know it. It's the beginning of the Westminster Catechism. It's the beginning of it's all of the it's it's John Piper, right? Talking about the, the main focus of man, right, is to live for the glory of God and to enjoy him in that process, right? It's to yes. do that. We know the answer, but we don't know how to live it out. And we oh, don't know how to so live true. in it. That's the ultimate. Isn't that kind of 
Couldn't that almost be a description of the of the dissatisfaction we all feel, but we don't really know how to get our arms around? I think that's 100 percent accurate. And, and, and we do. I mean, this goes back to scripture, right? Like we do constantly trade worship for uh, the the creator for the created things, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what we're mm-hmm. doing when we're saying like, I want romantic love to be the thing that fills me, or I want my success to be the thing that fulfills me, right? Whatever it is, right? The things that we long for, we're looking to that thing really to be our God and our savior. And so like you said, the church answer is, we know that it's actually God that we're thirsting for. Like yes. all of these things are are pointing us to a, really to a hunger that is uh, eternal, that's supernatural, that only the Lord can fulfill. And so that is the right question, Brian. Like, so then what do we do? Right. Mm -hmm. And and I do think this is, I do think we have to see this not as, not as a, not like, don't beat ourselves up over this. Right. right? Like, Oh, here I am again. I'm not satisfied. I'm discontent. I should be more content. I should be grateful. I should be, but instead go, Oh God, ah, here I am again. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm so human. Like I just keep longing and longing and longing, but you know what, Lord, I thank you for this longing because I know that it points me to you. And I think if we could just like approach ourselves with a little more tenderness and kindness and then take our longings to God, mm-hmm. um, God, thank you for this longing in me. Like this is, even though it feels frustrating and I feel discontent, actually, this is a holy longing for you. Yes. It's almost like if we could make friends with our longing <laughs> and then surrender it to Jesus, like maybe there's an answer in that mm-hmm. posture mm-hmm. somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. The article ends this way. And I love it because there's a depth to it, but there's also, you know, quoting C.S. Lewis, like every good Christian does. He says, (laughs) so earlier he quotes C.S. Lewis and he said, so what solution might C.S. Lewis offer? And then he quotes Lewis. Lewis says this, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Mm. The author goes on to say, in, if short, we, uh, in short, if we expect a human relationship to fully satisfy our desire for God's love, then we will surely be disappointed. There are some desires, perfect love, lasting peace, transcendent meaning, that only God can satisfy. While not abandoning our commitment to marriage, we should be appreciative to Adele for eloquently voicing what many of us feel on a regular basis, that without God, even good or stable relationships can disappoint. I think that gets at the heart of it. It's difficult to live this out, but constantly being reminded the source of our ultimate satisfaction and our ultimate love and, and the ultimate answer to our desires being God himself, I think is part of the battle is just to be reminded of that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good word, Brian. Well, coming up next, pastors and leaders, can you be friends with those you lead? We're going to answer that question when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as we say a lot on the show, Brian and I are both pastors. We've both been in ministry for a long time. We know we have a lot of ministry leaders and pastors that listen to the show. And uh, my husband, actually, Brian, shared with me an article that Carrie Newhoff wrote. And he's kind of a leadership pastor guru guy, for those of you who don't know him. But the question that he asked is, can 
pastors be mm. friends with those they lead. And it's not just for pastors, it's for leaders as well. But can you actually be friends with those you're leading? He actually says, no, spoiler right. alert. He says, they're not actually your friends. And this is a hard truth that pastors and leaders need to um, accept in a sense. We'll unpack the article. But before we do, Brian, you and I have talked a lot about this, mm -hmm. like complicated friendship relationship with people in our church. And we know we have some of our own church folks listening. So we want to be kind and delicate and gentle in this conversation because we both love the people in our church deeply. But when you think about this, can pastors and leaders be friends with the people that they lead? This is a hard one for me. <laughs> this one's a hard one. Here's why. I'm in a pastor's group uh, that we meet once a month. Yeah. And there's like five other guys and there's a moderator. So there's got some structure to it. Okay. Interesting. And uh, we meet, we've been meeting once a month. I've been in this group for like five years. Some of them have been longer. We all, none of us have, ch our churches aren't near each other. Uh, churches are, all of our churches are relatively medium to small, that kind of deal. So anyway, why do I bring that up? Because a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago, uh, we got into a heated debate about whether you can be friends with people in your church, like mm. whether they can be your good friends. Mm. And I was, I, I said to them, uh, if I can't be friends with people in my church, then I don't want to be a pastor. Yeah. Like yeah. I was that one. And Aubrey, I would say the last couple of years has, um, has been a, an exercise in some pain for me around this subject in particular. Uh, people that I thought were kind of lifelong friends, um, uh, leaving the church and I'm fine with people leaving the church. It hurts, but I'm fine with it. But also in leaving the church, cutting me and my wife out, just mm. gone. And mm. you're like, well, why was that necessary? And that's what Newhoff's getting at here is uh, your relationships as a pastor tend to be much more transactional in yeah. that way of, uh, well, when we're at your church and we're happy with the church, we're, we're really close to you. Like I've been a big believer my whole life. I like, this is where my good friends are going to be because this is where I'm spending most of my time. Uh, so do I believe you can't be friends with people in your church? No, I would never say it that black yeah. and white. I yeah. would never. Some of my best friends are still a part of my church where they are still here. Can you, are you as a pastor setting yourself up for pain if you only see your good friends as people in your church? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. No, That's that so you, true. You must have friends who are not your friends at, because they're part of your church. Absolutely. Uh, but whose relationships, who, uh, let's put it this way. If you were to leave your church or your church were to uh, start struggling, they're still going to be your friends. Yeah. Uh, they're still yeah. going to be there for you. You need people like that. But I would say this topic, Aubrey, and I'll just lay my own. I'm a, I'm a feeler. I'm an emotions yeah. guy. Yeah. I'll just lay this out. This has been the thing that has made me the closest to quitting my job mm. is this exact conversation about uh, relationships with people that you thought were like lifelong friends that mm. when they left your church, they left. Uh, this for me has been the struggle. And I know it's been, I don't know if it's to that level for you, but I know this has been a hard thing for you. And to be honest with you, every single pastor I know, this has been a hard lesson yeah. or a hard yeah. thing throughout life because uh, you want to believe, well, no, we're friends because we're friends and yes. that will, it won't matter if you, it, it, but the only people that I've stayed good friends with who have left my church are people who've left for reasons like they've moved right, or right. other things. People who've left my church, but still live around here. I don't, that we're just don't see each other. Like there were the, that friendship kind of went away with them leaving our church and that causes a lot of pain. So certainly it does. Uh, as a feeler, 
Uh, I want to believe that I can be friends with people in my church, and I am, but I think you have to view those people more temporarily. And and who are the friends that are always going to be there? I do have a couple people in my church that I'm confident will be friends for life. Uh, regardless of this, but I used to think all of my friends at church were like that. And it's just not true. Uh, Carrie Newhoff over at his website basically says that ministry is the perfect storm where work, faith and community collide. And I think that's part of what you've just put your finger on, Brian, is it's weird when you're the pastor because it is like everyone in church is a family. And should be a community and should be friends. And especially I would say maybe in our circles, Brian, we have a little bit more of an egalitarian stance. I don't I'm not talking gender egalitarian. I'm talking about like we sort of see ourselves as equal to the people in our congregation. And so that even gets a little weird because there might be different people who have a different idea of what a pastor should be or or shouldn't be. And and then I. I think I have just gotten to the point where I'm almost afraid to be friends with people in my church who maybe weren't my friends before part before yeah. church, right? Because I'm like, well, what if they leave? What if they get mad at me and Kevin? What if, and I don't know that my heart can take it. And I know like leaders, we need thick skin, but I'm telling you, I'm still a human being. Like you said, yeah. I'm a feeler. And so it, and, but that doesn't feel right. Like we should not be afraid to be friends with people in our church. It is really complicated. I will say we do have to find leaders, pastors have to find really good friends outside of church in yeah. order to kind of fill that void. And then I I um I don't know what to do with the problem of it. You know what I mean? Cuz the idealistic part of me wants to be like, yeah, we can all be friends. We'll work through it. And I mean, I I posted this article and I had somebody say Look, I've been ministry for 20 years. I have great friendships with the people that I lead. And there was a part of me wanted to be like, well, are you a church leader? Like, that's how <laughs> cynical I was. But I think what this person was saying is what it ought to be. Like, the friendships, the relationships fill us and keep us going. But I, I mean, after 2020 and 2021, this feels harder than it has ever felt. And you know, some of it is even at a small church. There's some weird power dynamics. There's some weird thing like, are you, what happens to people? Like, so let's say you're really close friends with some people in church. Do other people feel left out? I mean, there's just like layers and layers and layers of this. And I don't like keeping people at a distance emotionally because I don't think that's a great way to lead mm-hmm, or love mm-hmm. or serve people. But I do wonder if, so uh, Carrie Newhoff brings up this uh, Dunbar circle, basically. And ultimately, he says it uh, it's this famous circle by a psychologist from England, Robin Dunbar, who argues that humans really can only handle about 150 personal relationships, but then they're like um, in concentric circles. So you really can only have three to five best friends and then 12 mm-hmm. to 15 friends. And then a tribe of people, like a church of people, 150 Everyone else fits outside of that. And so if you do kind of think about it in circles, like, yes, you can be friends with your tribe, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. like, they're not going to be in that best friend circle. And maybe that's okay. Like, maybe that's a healthy way to look at it. Um, But I I don't know. There was something about this article that both made me sad. Like, why can't we be, why can't leaders be friends with those we lead? But also like, actually, I mean, maybe this is the mantle of leadership and, and maybe it's okay to own that reality while still loving people really well. But I don't know, Brian. I don't have a great final word on this. I wish I did. I think the sweet spot is where 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 I need to get to is 
there's the one hand of saying, I'm going to be best friends with everybody in my church, no matter where they move to, no matter if they leave our church, like we're going to stay friends forever. And then there's the other side that goes, I'm going to be completely jaded, not open myself up to anybody. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to be this island. And both of those are bad. Yes, uh, neither of those good. work. We've that's got good. to land in the middle that says, you know what? I'm going to pour my life in. I'm going to love these people. Mm. If they're here for 30 years with me, I'm going to love our time together. If mm. they're here for one, but most, but just realizing, and every pastor I know has said this, just realizing the people in your church who eventually leave there, it just works that way. And you might be out there listening going, it doesn't need to. I scream that all the time, yeah, yeah. but it's just the way it works. So I'm going to pour my life and I'm going to just enjoy the people here. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also going to work to have friendships outside of the church uh, that may be more long lasting and may have a depth to them and kind of work them. And then also trust the people in the church who truly are my friends. Be like, nope, I'm going to trust that these people really are my friends and we can live that way. So it's just very complicated. Yeah. Already. I think that the danger for pastors who are listening is to not allow yourself to get jaded and be that's fine. It. Then I'm just going to treat it. this as a job and I'm never going, you know, that's not helpful. No, that's not what God wants for you in your ministry. Anyway, interesting conversation. Well, we're going to take a turn when we return and talk about how we speak well of others. Some good stuff from our friend, Nona Jones. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. It is the end of the day on Tuesday. We are so thrilled that you've been with us. And as you know, we love ending the show by giving you just a good, solid, encouraging word to send you home this evening. And I am, I receive emails from Nona Jones, not Nora Jones, the singer, <laughs> but Nona Jones. She's the, uh, she represents a lot of different organizations. Probably the most well known is one called Facebook. Don't know if you've heard of it. It's a no little, I think they're going to make it. I think that little, yeah, it's just a little boutique it. organization <laughs> called Facebook. She's, she's one of the faith leaders for Facebook. So she actually gets to talk about faith things on Facebook, which is really, really cool. She's part of an organization that Kevin and I are part of called Faith and Prejudice. She's just an all around great, like pastor, minister. She's a great follow. But I signed up for her email list. And this was one that's been sitting in my inbox for a while. You know how sometimes you get these emails and it takes right. you a little bit to open them up. And this morning I was just reading it and I was like, oh, this is good and convicting and we have to talk about it. But what she's really challenging us is with this. And let me just share with you the question she asks because it's more powerful than anything I could say. She says, I want to ask you to be honest for a moment. Do you ever find it difficult to speak well of those who seem to be more th successful than you? Mm. Maybe you can get someone's name or face on your mind right now who has a habit of getting under your skin with how much they achieve. She says, well, just know that I'm raising my hand in transparency because I am not exempt. Through the years, I have learned that I have to intentionally guard my heart, thoughts, and words because if I'm not careful... Jealousy can creep in and take a hold of me when it looks like someone else is getting more shine than me. Mm. And apparently, if you know what I'm talking about, we're not the only ones. And then she talks about <laughs> something in the scripture, which we'll dive into in a minute. But Brian, I, you know, to be transparent with you, I do wrestle with this sometimes. And sometimes mm. in my own prayer life, I'll have to. In fact, someone I'm very close with made an amazing announcement recently. And my first thought was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, Lord, 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 forgive me. I'm so sorry. 
bless them. Thank you for what you're doing in their life. A win for this person is not a loss for me, God. Help me to be thankful for what you're doing in my life. But mm. it can be so easy to lose perspective. It you know, it reminds me so much of the Garden of Eden where it's like God's like here's a whole paradise. You can't have this one tree here. But in humanity, we're just like, but I want that tree. Why can't right. I have that tree? And we we have such a scarcity mentality. We forget to see what God is doing right in front of us. And then that causes us, I think, not to celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives. I don't know. You're a guy. Is this more of a female struggle or no. do you get this too? No, I totally get this. I don't okay. think it's a guy girl thing. I think it is. Um, I think it's a human thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, some people struggle more than others. But Aubrey, yeah. I'll just be honest with you. I struggle with this. Because I think what jealousy comes out of when we see other people succeeding, particularly in the field or the area that we are longing to succeed oh, in, yes. that it highlights for us, we're not actually mad that they're succeeding or jealous. Right. We're go, it highlights for us that we're not or yeah, not like to it, the same level. It makes level. us feel like we're inadequate. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, for somebody like you, if you've got a friend whose book just explodes, I mm -hmm. think it is a natural inclination to go. Well, I want my book to explode. Yes, like I want. Totally. I think for us as pastors, when we see another church in town who's doing good work, and we should be celebrating, but they all of a sudden are bigger than us, and now they're kind of the hot church in town, and they're kind of, you know, now they're double what the size we are, or whatever else it might yeah. be. It's really easy to not celebrate God. Look at what you're doing through them in this town. Amen. Praise God. Like I've always wondered how people get to that point. My, oh. I just, the, you said, just being honest, my natural inclination is always, well, I wish they'd kind of fail a little bit. Or, like, <laughs> totally. Uh, I, I really want to be that or instead mm -hmm. of like, man, there's more than enough ministry to happen here or right. even how can we partner it's a hard one. And so the weird that thing is. in the church world is we start competing against each other, which is just ridiculous when you think about it. It's yeah. like, why would churches like there again, there's more than enough to go work to be done here. Mm. Uh, so, but as, a, you know, as a radio host going, man, I really, man, that podcast has all of these, you know, these follows and gets all this pub, yes. man, I really would. And yeah. you start to think about everyone else's successes become some sort of reflection upon your own failure. And you go, but but that's a weird deal, right? right. And so right. she even goes on later to say, uh, you don't lose just because someone else wins. Life isn't a zero-sum game. But many of us are playing as if it is because we have forgotten that at the end of the day, we will only have what God allows anyway. It's this – I think we do. I think we live like life is this zero-sum game. So if that person's kid is successful, uh, what does it mean for my kid? What does mm. it say about – it doesn't say anything about your kid. It doesn't say anything about your parenting. But man, what you described, I think, is a really natural inclination that's also really dangerous because it's hard to love people. It's hard to support people. It's hard to bless people whom at the same time you're jealous of. Yeah. So Nona Jones, she gives this example of of Jonathan and David and Saul. She she says that in First Samuel uh, chapter 19, the Bible says that King Saul told his son, Jonathan, and his attendants to kill David. We know this story because he's grown very jealous of David, right? Those people are singing those songs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. And so Saul is jealous. But the Bible says that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, may the king not sin against his servant David, servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have yeah. been very beneficial to you. And she talks about how this is so remarkable 
because we know Saul hated David, felt David was a threat to his kingdom, but David actually wasn't a threat to Saul. Mm -hmm. Here's what she points out. This is incredible to me. David was a threat to Jonathan. Because if you think about it, Saul's kingdom was established. Jonathan was his heir. So really, the throne would have gone to Jonathan. So it's Jonathan saying, let's champion David. And I think that is so incredible. And here's how how she sums it up. I think this is such a good word for all of us. Here's the thing. You don't lose just because someone else wins. Life isn't a zero-sum game, but Mm -hmm. many of us are playing as if it is because we have forgotten that at the end of the day, we will only have what God allows anyway. You have no reason to be jealous of anyone else because what God has for you has your name on it. And I I love that word because I, I think, you know, even in this conversation, Brian, you and I are like, oh, we should be different. We should be different. But the reflection ultimately is like, look. God has good things for us. God is an abundant father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Our focus needs to be on those things, celebrating what God is doing in the world through all of his people and not on what we feel like he's not doing. But, oh, this is a this is a work of the Lord in our lives, it's a hard isn't one. it? It's yeah. a hard one because it, it gets at our own insecurities yeah. is really what this gets at. Yeah. Why aren't I that successful? Why don't people talk about me that way? Why are people like, you know, you get mm. to some very deep things here uh, and, and Satan really uses those things, yeah. right? We have an yeah. enemy who's sitting there going, oh, God must not love you as much or you're just not as t- – or whatever else it might be. And instead of us going – God has blessed me in so many ways, uh, and I'm thankful that God has blessed this person in this ways. And I want to – I the most – let's just be honest. As I get older especially, the people that I respect most in the world increasingly are the humble people who seem very secure of themselves mm-hmm. and who can go, that's awesome what they're doing. That's awesome what they're doing. You should read this guy. You know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I want to be that person, but you, you, the older you get, you also realize how difficult that is. Oh, yes. You also realize how much we need God to help us, don't we? Mm -hmm. Well, we hope that encourages you and also challenges you today. If this is a struggle for you, maybe it's time to put that struggle down and to celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives to celebrate their victories as well as your own. And thanks so much for joining us again today. We'll be back here tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.